Hello everyone, and welcome to Explore Our Story with Dan Schmaltz. This is the first in which I hope will be a series of special episodes that will focus on local history storytellers. I've wanted to learn to do interview podcasts since I began this journey back in 2020, bringing in other voices in our local history community to tell stories that most people never hear. So first in this series is an interview with Marion Rose. Marion comes from a family that have been for four generations involved in the undertaking and funeral business in Waterloo Region. She's written extensively on this topic and produced a number of books. Today, she's here to talk to us on her latest, Death as Life's Work. This book deals with the history of funeral homes in the region of Waterloo, and she's going to tell us about a few in Cambridge's history, along with a couple of really interesting stories. So enjoy the first episode of our Explore Our Stories, Our Storytellers. Hi, Marianne. How are you today? And welcome to the Explore Our Story podcast. I am well. Thank you, Dan. And thank you for having me on to talk about death as life's work. Awesome. So uh, how did you come to write about uh, write this book, actually? Well, my growing up years included spending time at the furniture store in Elmira, which was in the same building as the funeral home and chapel. Both were owned by my mother and her brother, passed down from their grandfather, Christian Dreisinger, who established the businesses in 1904 and 1905. I was used to seeing people in caskets, being quiet in the store while there was a funeral in the chapel on the other side of the wall, watching staff wash and then park park those big black funeral cars in a tight spot in the garage. Many years later, while I was researching my family genealogy, it expanded to the family business, which, to be honest, was mostly a casual interest. Then I found in a desk drawer a photo of two hearses and two other funeral cars parked in front of a house on a street corner in Waterloo. A huge sign on poles straddling the sidewalk read, Letters and Dreisinger's Undertaking. What? Why didn't I know about this? My mother said that her grandfather also had a funeral business in Waterloo with the Letter family. So that was the beginning of my much more than casual interest in undertakers and funeral directors. When I couldn't find much in old history books, I was puzzled. Why wouldn't there be more written about a profession and the people that affect the lives of all of us? I decided to try and fill that gap. Because I didn't think there would be a lot, I aimed to research all of Waterloo Region. That was a surprise. I ended up with a book of 548 pages. Wow. Uh, That's incredible. Uh, Just uh, It's one of those topics that not a lot of people talk about right like it's it affects us all but it's just one of those things that people don't talk about so right yep okay so um the next question i got for you is how much time did you think you spent uh, writing the book well i can't give hours <laughs> i really didn't want to keep track mm-hmm. as most people who spend a lot of time on something don't want to do But it's been about eight years from when I decided I could do a book, a book about undertakers' histories. 
in two of those three years, I took time off, in a manner of speaking, to mm-hmm. complete another much smaller book, yep. Mennonite Funeral and Burial Traditions. Awesome. That was in 2018 and 2019. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, uh, that's awesome. Okay, so uh, next thing we're going to talk about today is um, who were some of the early undertakers in Galt, Preston, and Hessler, and where were those business lo- businesses located? Okay, thanks for asking. I'll talk about the various locations and buildings of the current funeral homes in all three communities. Awesome. There are many more described in the book, and all the details that I'm giving plus photos of the buildings, are in my book, Death as Life's Work. So starting with Galt, T. Little and Son is, of course, one of the most recognizable names as one of the earliest furniture makers and undertakers. Actually, though, Little wasn't the earliest. The Galt Reporter article states that Thomas Little learned the furniture and undertaking trade with John Barber, who is located on Water Street near Colburn Street. But Barber died in 1888, and so his name is known pretty much only to researchers. Thomas Little and Sons' three-story undertaking and furniture building at 20 Ainsley Street North still stands, modernized and now only two stories. In the 1930s, Littles expanded and moved their funeral service to 39 Grand Avenue North. Later, they sold the furniture branch to Mannion Brothers. The current T. Little Funeral Home and Cremation Center has been in the former Willard Home at 223 Main Street since 1986. Oh, wow. Also in Galt, in the 1930s and 1940s, Harold Gray combined a funeral and ambulance service in a lovely house at 196 St. Andrew Street. Fantastic photo was taken of his ambulance, hearse, and other cars in front of that house. Gray moved up the street to number 96 St. Andrews, which had been Adam Warnock's stately residence. Mm. It is still visible inside and the roof outline outside amidst later renovations by Wilfred Coots, and then by the current owner, Coots Funeral Home and Cremation Center. Perhaps more people will remember Luciana's, sorry, Luciani's Fruit Market at 95 Dundas Street before it was renovated to be the Corbett Funeral Home in 1986. Victor Corbett and Partners sold it to Steve Parker in 2006. So now on to Preston. One of the buildings that Andrew Grieve occupied with his family is at 1351 King Street East. It was also the funeral home where the family lived. Grieve's surname sort of suits his occupation. Yeah. (laughs) Gordon Pass had a furniture store at 602 King Street in one unit of the three-story building at the corner of Argyle Street. Several of those narrow retail units in that building were home to no less than six undertaking establishments in the 1920s and 1930s. That was before more spacious buildings were needed for funeral homes when it became common to have visitations there. 
Pass also partnered with Harry Steger for a few years at 566 Queen Street, now Queenston. Steger had moved from Hesper to Preston in the 1920s to open a furniture and funeral business with his wife Mary, and at first in partnership with his brother Charles, who remained in Hespler. Over the years, Harry and Mary continued on their own in different buildings. Residents today might wonder about the name Steger and the year 1928, visible in the brickwork of the building where H&R Block is now, which is 728 King Street. Mm-hmm. They can wonder no more. It was built by Harry Steger for retail furniture and undertaking. About 10 years later, the H.K. Steger Funeral Home was built at 566 Queen Street. It was purchased by Robert Barthel in 1959 and is now the Barthel Funeral Home. It too has renovations, it too has had renovations and additions, leaving parts of the original house visible. So next is Hespler. As far as I know, its undertaking history started with George Gunther, who was in what is now a duplex at 7375 Queen Street East. In 1897, Aaron Steger, father of Harry and Charles, purchased Gunther's furniture and undertaking and renamed it to Steger and Company. Charles Steger expanded the furniture store to be in the Hagmeyer block at 5 and 7 Queen Street East. Both those buildings still exist. One is a residence and the other a business. Aaron Steger built their family home in 1905 on what was then Galt Street. After about 40 years, it became a combined family and funeral home. And today it is still a funeral home with the address of 1766 Franklin Avenue. The same location, just a different address and as Cambridge instead of Gold. Irwin and Florrie Nelson purchased it in 1957 and operated it until Dale and Laurie Lounsbury took it over in 1996. Currently it is the Lounsbury Funeral Home Division of Corbett Funeral Home. That's really fascinating, Mary. And um, so one of the questions I had for you is, uh, it seems like a lot of the funeral homes uh, that you mentioned and all that were um, family-run businesses. Um, How true is that uh, today? Well, it's it's only very partially true because um, even the early ones that were owned by family members and several generations may still be independent but they've changed hands and most of them are out of the original, the ones that started with family and one or two generations. Most of them are now still independent, but owned by different people. And an example of that would be my family's funeral home in Elmira. It was owned by family until 2009, I think. And um, it's, not not any longer owned by family, but my sister still works there, and um, and she's been there for almost fifty three years. Wow! So that's I think that's other funeral homes have been purchased by corporations, and then of course those are, are different owners. Oh, well, that's awesome! Thank you. 
So, Marion, you wanted to share some stories with us uh, from your book, uh, Death is Life's Work. So uh, feel free to share some stories with us. I do want to share some stories. Thanks, Dan. What I'm talking about today are some of just some of the fabulous, I think, stories Mm -hmm. that came from my own research and from others telling me about them. There are more in the book and also about 30 interviews with funeral directors or their family members that give a sense of the personal life of people in the profession, why they chose it, how it affects them, and of course, some of what their their work entailed. There, there is actually a lot of photos and information about funeral vehicles in this book. And one of the stories that I want to tell is about a vehicle conversion in Galt about the 1920s. That was when motor vehicles were gradually replacing horses as transportation. The same change occurred for funeral vehicles, of course. It was a time when no longer useful horse-drawn hearses were turned into, if you can imagine, utility wagons or storage compartments, and I heard of one that was made into a chicken coop. Wow. Thankfully, others were stored, and years later, they were restored. Those that were newer and more ornate at the time when the changing was occurring were converted to a motor hearse by a manufacturer or by a local auto body builder. Also, some carriage builders made those changes by crafting a carved wood body on a Ford or Studebaker or other brand of chassis. Talented local carpenters also took on that task of crafting a hearse body. T. Little's ornate horse-drawn hearse, originally built by Mitchell and Company in Ingersoll, was converted to what has been described as a magnificent motor hearse by William Bowman of Galt. He is listed in one of the Galt town's directories as an auto body builder. We know about this vehicle and Mr. Bowman only because there are photos. One shows the conversion in process, likely at Hunter's Garage at 38 and 40 Ainsley Street. Perhaps Bowman was going to use the photo as advertising because a sign with his name is placed in front of the vehicle. The other photo is of the finished magnificent motor hearse parked in front of Hunter's showroom. The next story is from Hespler and takes place in 1915. That year, Aaron Steger looked after a funeral for a 16-month-old toddler, Merle Gowing, whose parents were Wesley and Dean. Sadly, Merle had died very suddenly of croup. Within a few days after her death, Wesley started to pour out his grief, excuse me, his grief in diary entries. He continued for two months, almost daily, and then then there were no more entries. He just stopped. At that time, it was unusual for anyone to write about their feelings in a diary, especially for for a man. Mm -hmm. So I think his words speak to our modern thinking that a hundred And more years ago, people were, quote, used to deaths because children and adults didn't live as long as now. Yeah. Not so. Gowing's diary showed that grief was as intense then as it is now. 
I was fortunate to be shown the diary and post-mortem photo of Little Merle by a private collector, and I transcribed the diary for the book. That's incredible. It's such a heartbreaking story. and just... It is. I've read bits from the diary, and it's, it's, hard, it's hard to read um, yeah. without, you know, breaking down a bit. Yeah. The hardest thing is the death of a child, right? Like, yeah. oh, that's, that's heavy. Yeah. Well, my next my next story isn't isn't quite as bad. The next and last story that I have. Okay, that's great. It's from Preston in the 1920s, and I mentioned Andrew Grieve earlier. Some of his records have survived. One of the ledgers indicated that during some of the years that he had a furniture and undertaking business, he was also a hack or carriage driver. Other records that survive include a 1923 invoice from the Lake Erie and Northern Railway Company and the Grand River Railway. When someone died in another province or city or in the United States, the deceased was transported home by rail. Mrs. John, her first name was Lizzie, Wershing, died at Lakeland, Florida in 1923 and was brought to the Canadian Pacific Depot in Galt. According to George Roth, who is a rail historian, the body would have been brought from the depot to Preston via King Street on G Grand River Railway car number 622. I think he knew that car was used for that purpose. Otherwise, I'm not sure how he'd know the exact car. (laughs) Greaves' ledger also showed charges to Mr. Wershing for two hearses. I think one would have been to receive the body from the rail car and take it to Wershing's daughter's home in Preston for the funeral. After that, it was taken to the Preston Cemetery for burial. The invoice and ledger entry told part of the story, but I didn't know who Mrs. Wershing was or where she died when I first found this information. A colleague looked up the obituary for me. So in these stories, I was given leads and information from many other people, including a collector, families who shared business records, a rail historian, a hearse historian, and an obituary researcher. The book turned out as well as it did, thanks to many who helped me. Wow, those are some pretty fascinating stories, Marion. Um, really uh, drives home like the kind of like the human factor in in undertaking, and uh, really uh, just thank you very much for sharing those with us. You're welcome. So, Mary, and one of the uh, other questions I had for you, now that you've, like, uh, completed, um, I guess we call it your magnum opus uh, book uh, here, uh, do you have any plans for any other uh, books uh, to write? The short answer is no. I tell people this was my last my last book, the biggest and the, the last. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll do some small projects, but I, I definitely don't plan on doing um, a book of any size, actually. Yeah, uh, totally understandable. Uh, this one, uh, this is a huge undertaking, no pun intended. Um, uh, really, really incredible work that you've done with this. So um, for anyone uh, listening that's interested in purchasing a copy of uh, Death is Life's Work, uh, how would they go about uh, purchasing a copy of your book? 
Uh, there's a variety of ways. Um, the closest retail place uh, to Cambridge is the gift shop at the Ken Sealing Waterloo Region Museum. There are uh, bookstores in Kitchener and Waterloo and Elmira. And I can also mail to um, pretty much anywhere. So people can contact me by email and I'll, I'll give my email. It's mlroes at simpatico.ca. Or you can message me at my Facebook page, which is Undertakers and Their Businesses in Waterloo Region. And for those that would like to read it and don't want to buy a book, the, the libraries in Waterloo Region all have copies of it also. That's fascinating. Um, I definitely uh, would like to look at getting one for myself. Um, Fascinating work, Marion. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be the first of which I hope will be a series of uh, storyteller local storytellers uh, that I want to talk to on podcast. So, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate you sharing your book with us. You're welcome, and thank you so much. It's it was fun to do. Awesome. Thanks. I hope you all enjoyed the first Our Storytellers episode of the Explore Our Story podcast. The goal is to eventually do a series of these episodes to let other voices in our local history community share their stories. Next time, we'll get back to our main story, the development of the village of Galt, and move into the 1850s. We'll look at how railways changed everything, the further development of industry and textiles, and how the tiny village of Galt became the town of Galt the most prosperous settlement in what at that time was called Waterloo County. It will also be time for us to say farewell to two giants of local history as we uh, say goodbye to both William Dixon Sr. and Absalon Shade, the two men most responsible for the settlement that became Galt. They'll take their final bows from our story. So please uh, feel free to let me know what you think of the interview episode. And as always, give our Explore Our Story a follow on social media, including Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download it on your favorite podcast app like Spotify and Apple. Join me again next time as we continue to, you know, explore our story. <laughs>